Hey guys, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, where I interview the absolute best health and wellness practitioners from across the globe to show you what they do so you can do it too. This is because, like you, I did not always feel that health was easy. I tried different diets, exercise plans, but often felt misled by an industry that really thrives on you not getting healthy and always spending money on the next new thing. Because of this, I'm getting bare naked on health and pulling back the curtain to show you that being truly healthy is simple. Wherever you are in your health journey, I want to show you that with minimal effort, you can get maximum results and do what you love. Play with your kids, go for a hike, and crush it in your business all while feeling great. To give a kickstart, I encourage you to go over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to access my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and that the show is really sponsored by you guys. Each of you that works with me that I am able to take on as a client helps me to be able to keep putting out these podcasts for free. So I just want to thank you, each of you, for your love and support. Hey guys, I'm your host, Nick Horowski, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, episode number 107. Today's episode, I interview the playful occupational therapist, Allison Crystal. Be sure to stick around for the end of the show to hear about Allison's favorite forms of play, a dive into infant development, and a great discussion on her theory of evolutionary mismatch. Alrighty, guys, welcome to another episode of the Bare Naked Health Podcast. And on the line today, I have Allison Crystal. Allison, first question I ask everybody who comes on the show is, share with us the highlights of your health journey, please. Um, it's, it's been kind of a circuitous route a little bit, um, but certainly I think um, coming from a, a fitness background and then getting a little more um, into the idea of functional medicine and kind of holistic health um, was, was what guided me into sort of the evolutionary perspective on health as, as well as the paleo re- revolution. Um, and specifically applying that to kids. So I think um, I, I think the functional medicine piece combined with with the pediatric piece, and then coming from that background of kind of understanding a bigger picture of nutrition and, and wellness was was a big part of it. So where are you at now, kind of with that? Like you said, the the evolution like into the paleo and bring that, but into kids. Like how is right. what does your practice look like really? Right. So um, my doctors at occupational therapy. So I, I kind of went into the realm of medicine thinking that um, I, I really wanted long-term relationships with kids in a treatment environment that that wasn't kind of that meet, treat, greet, repeat sort of model, um, kind of that traditional medical model. Um, and, and so I've done that for many, many years now. And I think the rehab model is such a powerful and um, and kind of enlightening one in terms of getting folks back to the function that's really important to them. But I have always, I think, felt, especially in pediatrics, like there's something missing and that the underlying imbalances that really affect a child's ability to be involved and engaged in those daily occupations that are important um, is, is, I think, multifaceted and, and sometimes doesn't get directly addressed in the traditional rehab model. So um, my practice has always been in kids. So I, I work with kids that have varying levels of disability or ability um, that are having a hard time based on those disabilities engaging in their environment in effective ways. And that can be through in play, in academics, in relationships. Um, so cognitive, physiological, kind of psychological, emotional function. Um, 
and in recent years, I've I've gotten much more involved in kind of the functional medicine approach. And um, my own journey with cancer a few years back was kind of the catalyst for, you know, there's got to be something more to this medical thing, right? Like we're not really getting to the nitty gritty. And, and that perspective was one that I had really had throughout my rehab career in pediatrics. So um, as I got into functional medicine and started identifying and, and understanding what some of the imbalances physiologically looked like as outcomes in children, um, I think the combination of the two really, really made a, a, a lot of sense to me in terms of a, a marriage of concepts. So to answer <laughs> kind of more, more globally your question about what does a typical day for me look like, um, I practice in pediatrics and I, I work with kids and consult with professionals in a school setting at this point. Um, I've had the good fortune to kind of be all across the map, whether it was outpatient, whether it was inpatient, whether it was um, home-based kind of rehab, but, but right now I'm focused more on the educational model in schools. I'm actually very curious about the school model because one of my uh, rotations that I did when I was in grad school for PT, uh, I, I did in a school district. And mm -hmm. at that point, like I, w I was, it was more, I was into PT, like sure I was into health, but didn't probably have any idea all this other stuff existed. Like how do you mold all of that together and especially get through, I'm sure some of the red tape that is in a school district. Sure. So as you probably are well aware, when we look at a model of rehabilitation in schools, we have to act ourselves, ask ourselves, how is this child's differing level of ability influencing his ability to access the educational environment? And so from a physical therapy perspective, that access might be getting from point A to point B or being safe on the playground or those kind of things. From an OT perspective, I can cast kind of a wider net um, and look at not just the fine motor skills of like handwriting and, and those sort of things, but also the social emotional skills that are necessary to be successful and attentive and engaged in academics or in peer relationships or in self-regulation. Um, that being said, we are kind of bound by the the constant kind of mantra in the back of our heads. Like, I see X, Y, and Z that I would really love to address with this kid, but can I justify that it's affecting his academic performance? Um, and if, if we can, it's an open door to kind of um, get creative with our interventions. Um, and I think there have definitely been some situations, especially for me, where I'll have conversations with parents on the side where there's a lot going on kind of outside the school environment that is only being manifested in the school setting as kind of this tiny little issue. But yet when you speak to the parents, there's really much, much greater concerns. And I think those are the most frustrating cases because it, it feels like there's so much work to be done. But again, we're bound by that school setting thing. So, um, so it's, it's kind of a catch 22. Where do you suggest uh, or offer that those parents even begin to start? I mean, I know it's, of course, going to be dependent on the individual child, but any recommendations, any any places to, to point them to, to say like, okay, you, you know, there's a lot of things going on. Uh, if the child's getting an OT in school, like they're probably, they might be getting outside of school, but what else can they do uh, really going forward to help their kid out the most? Sure. Well, that's a really good question. And I think it depends on the individual cases. And, and sometimes um, as I speak, and, and I have to be a little bit careful because as a representative of the school system, um, I have to be a little <laughs> cautious with any sort of recommendations I make so I'm that I'm not sure. representing. Um, so there's a little bit of red tape, but, but it's always enlightening when I'm able to talk to parents, kind of parent to parent rather than professional to parent, um, and, and kind of help them maybe ask the guiding questions about what are the hardest things for your kids at home? Is it that they don't fall asleep well? Is it that they fight all the time with the neighbor's kids? Is it that 
um, it, you know, they, they are climbing up and down the walls when, when they're getting up. For, so kind of asking leading questions to figure out where the, the parents feel like there's the most concern and then helping to guide them to the right professional based on that. So it might be a physiological thing that is a functional medicine practitioner or a pediatrician or a holistic health kind of thing. It might be a, um, an anxiety piece that certainly has root causes in some of those physiological aspects, but might need more um, social emotional intervention. So I think getting parents to, to really identify, kind of do some detective work about where the main sources of concern really are and, and navigating it that way, I think. No, I think that's actually a really awesome place to start. Like I wrote that one down, like hardest things for your kid at home because yeah. that can really open the door. I mean, by figuring that out, that's that's a really important concept. Like you're going to be able to recognize those, especially as the parent. Uh, you're, you're the second somebody asks you that, like things are going to start to click, and for I sure. think that can really set the stage for what you would do next. Absolutely, most definitely. And and I think I found kind of on the other end of that pendulum that that with all of the media attention on quirky kids or kids that present differently than the typical, you know, exact behaviors. Um, so we know kids that learn differently, that speak differently, that interact differently, um, that move differently. And I think sometimes um, we have professionals and even ourselves as parents who might be hyper aware of those differences and jump to the assumption that they indicate a greater concern. And so that same question, what is your kid having trouble with at home? If parents, you know, list these or, or professionals or caregivers list these these um, kind of, uh, you know, four or five, let's say, symptoms that they're concerned about, but they can't connect it to where it affects the child's ability to function in their roles as player or son or, or you know, pet owner or whatever, um, then we have to kind of zoom back and go, well, how much of that is this is who your kid is and we got to embrace it? And how much of that is there's really concerns that need to be addressed because it's interfering with this function so that it can kind of be a way to identify areas of dysfunction, but can also be a way to normalize areas of maybe quirkiness. And I think that's important too, because especially like, all right, my son's young, like pediatrician will talk about like all these milestones and stuff. And while they're important to an extent, there's no hard and fast rule that says like anything no. has to happen on this date because it's just not going to happen. Certain things are going to happen earlier. Certain things are going to happen later. And that's got to be uh, important to recognize, but might also be frustrating at the time if, if you're really trying to uh, identify any of these things too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as we have campaigns for awareness about, kids, you know, the early warning signs of X, Y, and Z dysfunction in kids, you know, I think parents can sometimes take that, that medical school or that medical student role where we're like, we learn about these diseases and then automatically we all have them, you know, and, and that's out of a <laughs> place of very good intention because they love their kids. But at the same time, I think um, it, those conversations are important for just like you said, parents to realize that the individuality does not mean dysfunction in, in many or most cases. One thing that I'm really curious on, like, I, I've checked out some of your work, but one of the things you talk about is evolutionary mismatch. Yeah. Just go to town on that, please. Like, share right. with everybody kind of what that means, especially, like, as in, in the pediatric uh, setting. Um, but what is that all about? Because that's, I think, something that is, is a really cool concept to explore here. Right. So. So I'll give you kind of the, the theoretical nerd version of what the theory or my theoretical take on it is. But then I'll also 
help make that tangible with a couple of like real world examples of why we think that is. So evolutionary mismatch is basically the concept that the way that we are um, genetically wired is adaptive to the environments in which we work, live and thrive. And the environments that we work, lived and thrive many, many, many years ago is certainly different than the environments now. And so because of those environmental differences, we are adapted as humans to environments that we are no longer in, right? So we don't see kids in nature all the time. We don't see, um, you know, that clan tribal mentality where we all depend on each other for the, the you know, greater good, good kind of a thing. So, you know, and, and I think it's, it goes without saying that, that we can argue that, you know, really, really simple things like technology and all that kind of stuff is obviously much different. But um, how it relates to children is that we in our current society, um, for lack of a better term, kind of, kind of, force kids into a box from the early ages. Um, so we're, we're looking at those milestones. We're enrolling kids in daycare and preschool um, as you know much earlier than we ever have because we have working parents who need to. Um, and we are, in a lot of ways, um, withdrawing the encouragement of exploration, risk, and play. And I think evolutionarily, that is a series of skills that is necessary for survival. We need to, as you know, back in the day, so to speak, kids played um, as they imitated adults. And so they wrestled and they ran and they climbed trees and, and they went in, in circles together in nature because that's what they saw the adults doing because the adults were doing that to survive. Um, and so play became imitation of that interaction with the environment. And if we look at play now, it's very much individual. It's screen driven. It's two dimensional. It's not outside in nature. And so all of those ingrained instincts that kids have to take risks and to explore and to get feedback from, from their environment are not realized. And so if we take that same concept and we apply it to a kid in school who has an ingrained need to explore and take risks and get feedback from his environment in a school setting, that looks like a behavior disorder. That looks like a kid who is impulsive and can't learn and inattentive and can't fo foster good relationships with his peers um, or might, you know, slam his chair a little too hard into the desk or that sort of a thing. So, um, so I think it, it's, it's theoretical at best, but I do think there's, there's some real, tangibility to what that looks like. Um, another concept is, is uh, the idea that why children have such a hard time falling asleep at night. And this I kind of see many sides to, but one theory is that because evolutionarily falling asleep by yourself as a child meant pretty much certain death. You were trained to fall asleep with your tribe, with your clan, because that was protection and safety. Um, and, you know, or, or why do we have kids that hate getting on the bus to go to school every day? Because, because structure and predictability and and um, lack of freedom back in the day evolutionarily meant you were probably a misfit and not embraced by the tribe. So so it's there's some tangibility to some of those concepts, um, but it certainly I think merits some interesting discussion and allows us to maybe shift our perspective a little bit on children that look like they don't quite fit in their environment as well as we'd like them to. How do you best get some, or like get whether it's your kids or like uh, just encouraging uh, just patients, anything like that, like yeah, with with the exploration, with the risk, but still keeping it like within the realm of okay, not going to get seriously hurt doing this. Right, right, and well, I mean, 
I think you as a parent with with a little one can probably identify to some of those same feelings. Like when he started crawling, like he needs to understand that his head's going to bonk on the side of the couch and it's not going to feel good because if I pick him up every time he gets close to the coffee table, he's never going to learn that sensation. But at the same time, I don't want to be in the ER with a gashed head on my kit, right? So, so finding I think that all, balance, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. I think that's a real thing. And and now that I have teenagers, I'm also finding that balance. You know, like. She needs to be accountable in the car, driving by herself. But at the same time, I want to follow her all day long. So I think that's a very, <laughs> that's a very natural progression in parenting and nurturing, right? Um, but I have found in terms of how I address that most successful is to be very overt about it and to really teach kids like, what are, you know, how are you interacting with your environment and what does it feel like to check that out? You know, let's 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 ha- let's call that risk-taking behavior what it is, and and allow them to, um, I think, articulate where they are in that moment. So, I'm trying to think of like a really concrete example. Um, I think one of the things that is an easy segue into teaching kids those skills is to encourage them to learn and to try things that they've never done before. Um, so, one of the things we do as parents is we're encouraged to get our kids, you know, into these sports really early on or they're taking the park district classes or you know we got to find that niche that our kid is going to be a great trumpet prayer player for the rest of his life or a football player and and we tend to streamline them into one or two activities that we really want them to hone in and and become an expert in right um but at the same time i think that's a catch-22 because then we're breeding 12 13 14 year old kids who don't know what it's like to try something new to go out and have their body move around in a sport that they've never done before because all the other 14 year olds have been doing it for 10 years. Um, so I think when I, when I encourage my own kids to learn a new skill physically, learn a new task, get comfortable with being uncomfortable in your own skin and learn what that kind of process feels like and, and model that for them as an adult, you know, at, however old I am, I need to go learn how to play golf and that's awkward and uncomfortable. Uh, I was just going to ask, are you working on anything right now? Is it, is it <laughs> <yeah>. golf? <laughs> it, well, it's, it is a little bit of golf. Yes. All right. How's that <laughs> um, going? Not well, not well, but I'm embracing it. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I, I do think that, that, um, that push and pull with your environment when you're learning a new school is really critical for this, for the self-awareness and taking risks. I, I think that's an awesome way to look at it. Just the encouraging of new things uh, right. because that's that's the only way you're ever going to figure it out. Uh. For sure. For sure. And I think, you know, kids that um, who whose parents or caregivers, and again, out of a place of very, very golden intentions, um, don't allow their children those natural consequences. Wow, natural consequences that the environment affords. You know, like I'm telling you, if you go on that trampoline, there's a real risk you're going to fall off and have some bruises. You still want to go on it, okay? And then it doesn't become an "I told you so" thing, but it becomes a, "Okay, did your gut tell you that maybe that was a little risky?" And and kind of giving them the language to understand what that process looks like, and not always pulling them away from the coffee table. Um, you know, like we said, kind of balancing that that risk and the feedback that they get from the environment. No, and that makes a lot of sense. Like, if we're out, well, I mean, it just snowed here. But if the if there's just if it's just the bare ground, whatever it is, like, I'll let Cooper do a lot more things there than I would necessarily yeah. if we were on the macadam. Uh, and yes. I'm encouraging that because hey, here's where I want him to take those bumps and bruises, and that's I guess uh, maybe cultivating that environment to allow for more exploration and and the risk taking, but still in a safer manner, if you will, too. 
Most definitely. And the other piece of that that I think is really important is that, as you know, in your background in in what you do, that that proprioceptive input is really self-regulating. It really is a modifier in some of those anxiety, risk, pro, con kind of things. So what that looks like to me is children that are taking risks with using their bodies and, and you know, climbing a tree or on that trampoline or, or getting deeper in that, you know, little cave or whatever it is. So kids that are taking risks that there's a physical aspect of it are going to get the feedback and internalize it and use it effectively more frequently and with more intensity. So, um, you know, a risk in a math problem is going to be ingrained <laughs> neurologically very, very differently than a risk climbing a tree, if that makes sense. So encouraging the physicality is something I think is really important. Well, now, how does that tie into uh, like any of the sensory integration stuff? Because I I'm sure they're a little bit different, but they can be tied in and really go a lot together uh, from that piece, too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that that's like the, the golden question right there. So um, for folks that, that are listening that might not understand kind of what sensory integration yeah, is, please. it's basically, we you know, we learned about the five senses in kindergarten, right? The sight and smell and touch and that sort of thing. But and, and so sensory integration is taking is an individual's ability to take those five senses in addition to a couple other senses, which are proprioception and the vestibular sense, which is basically the sensation of where your body is in space and the sensation of movement. So you're taking all of those senses that physiologically your body is taking in and you are taking in all the information from the environment and you're putting them all together to have an adaptive and functional and successful response on your environment. So one of the, the, um, one of the examples I like to use that, that I think kind of makes sense for folks is that if you're walking down a, a pier on a pond and there's a canoe at the end of the pier and your job, your, your, you know, mission is to get into that canoe successfully and paddle off into the sunset. As you're walking down the dock, you're taking in the information of the sound of the water. Is it splashing? Does it mean it's rough? You know, the sight, you know, it's, it's easy to figure out how you're using those five senses. But then when you go one step further and you picture getting into the canoe, as you're standing on the side of the, of the pier, looking at the canoe, do you jump in with both feet? that's probably not going to go well. Do you cautiously, you know, put one foot in the canoe and then interpret that sensation of movement and muscularity from your body to do it the right way? So, so and, and the adaptive response is the ability to get in that canoe and not fall in the water. Um, and, and so taking in all that information and doing something interactively with the environment that has a successful outcome is what we call ideal sensory integration. But when one of those senses gets a little messed up, or a child's body is not interpreting that sense in the right way, the imbalance of those senses leads to behaviors that look like um, kids that can't sit still, or kids that can't stand the feel of certain textures in their mouth when they're eating, or kids that can't stand to wear jeans and only can wear sweatpants. So those senses become imbalanced, and kids might be hyper-responsive to some of those sensory inputs, or hypo responsive, meaning their levels of alertness and arousal are so low that they can't interact effectively either. So there's kind of this pendulum thing in sensory integration and um, the movement aspect of it that you mentioned and the proprioceptive input we know helps kids intertwine all those sensory integration features in effective ways. So what that looks like is that canoe example, if a kid does some 
heavy squats. And then, I mean, like, let's take this for a fitness thing, right? Like if, if a kid, you know, has a good like shoulder massage and does some heavy squats and, and gets some nice, like rolling on a nice hard surface and then walks down the pier into the canoe, they're going to have a much greater chance of successfully getting into the canoe because that input right beforehand really integrated their senses for them. And so when we look at what that looks like in maybe an educational environment, a kiddo that can't sit still and can't um, attend cognitively to a task because he's fidgety or he's wiggly and he's falling out of his seat, if we incorporate some of that proprioceptive movement and deep pressure input prior to a classroom setting, he's going to be much more successful at integrating those senses and the adaptive response of learning and listening and comprehending is going to be much greater. How do you bring this into the classroom <laughs> then? I, I think that's that's my next point is like, or next thought, because I mean, I, I support like uh, standupkids.org, like where they're trying to get some of the standup desks yeah. in there, but also I, I love the idea of Swiss balls, but I can see where that can get to be a problem if you're launching them across the room at kids. But I, oh, I'm just yeah. curious, please, uh, on, on how you kind of bring this into the classroom then? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that the cornerstone of any integration of that is education of the folks that are really in the trenches with the kids. So the teachers and support staff and administrators and other clinicians in a school setting um, to, so that they have a good understanding of, of, you know, they can be really effective detectives in looking around a classroom and seeing two or three kids that are really struggling with being comfortable in their own skin, and they can then be their own kind of um, detectives in figuring out what those kids might need. So educating um, those staff in the school about what sensory integration dysfunction or some of the quirky things look like um, that are actually dysfunctional. And then once we all are speaking the same language, then it's a little easier to integrate some of those strategies. And it might be that you know, I have certain kids that, that need a 10-minute break before math. And during that 10-minute break, they have a very um, kind of predictable protocol of heavy work kinds of things that they do. And then they're really successful in the math class. So, so integrating those strategies so that it doesn't take away from the learning environment, but it actually supports them. And, and I think education is really the first step. This is just something popped into my head now, too. Like, what do you see as maybe uh, an ideal school day, if you will? For, for somebody who's going to like a, a standard like public school where they, they don't have that maybe necessary opportunity to get outside a lot. But I mean, like, it, does this start the day with movement and then maybe every in between every class? Like, how, how could that really be applied, at least as far as like a theoretical thing? Like, what, what would your be what would be your ideal setup for really not just students with the sensory integration problems or uh, just that need for movement? Because I think this could go across the board for everybody and have a lot of benefit. Most definitely. Um, I think, wow, that that's like opening Pandora's box. Um, It's a great (laughs) question. It's a great question. And I would love to actually get a panel of folks that, that have similar perspectives that we do. In addition to know the, the, federal structure of a school day and what's mandated to kind of integrate those things. But um, one of the things that I think is a really powerful aspect of any sort of integration in a, in a child in a school setting, again, one that either has good, bad, or otherwise sensory integration, not good or bad, but, but functional or dysfunctional integration kind of concerns. Um, but so a global um, strategy is choice and teaching kids to identify 
how their own bodies are feeling and what are the strategies to fix that or to make it better. Um, so to your question, I think, again, that education cornerstone, um, you know, we're working with some curriculum now that teach kids and developing some curriculum now that teach kids how their sensory differences are normal. You know, I don't like gummy bears. I only like pretzels. Oh, really? I don't like turtlenecks. I only wear things, you know, so, so just the normal sensory differences um, and how kids can make choices that support those differences and how that impacts their learning and their ability to connect and their emotional regulation. So a school day with lots of choices for movement. You know, it is, we have a 10 minute, it's, let's say that after the first lesson of the day, we have 10 minutes and you can choose to go outside and climb you can choose to snuggle up on the beanbag. You can choose to speak to a peer. What do you need in that moment? You can choose to get some water and put your head down. Um, so I think a lot of choice and, and child-directed kinds of um, opportunities would be, first of all, a game changer. Um, I've seen it on a micro level with the kids that I work and interact with, um, and that choice is really a game changer. Um, and then I think definitely anything, anything outdoors is huge, whether it's a math class outdoors where we're measuring the sidewalk squares, whether it's, um, you know, an English class where we're reading a story that has to do with nature and we're interacting in our environment. So anything where kids are getting that dose of vitamin D and sunlight and, um, and the ability to kind of be more um, naturalistic in their environment would be huge. Um, and I think one of the, the real drawbacks in our educational system now is just that need for standardization of assessment. So we have to teach X, Y, and Z because we have to take data on how X, Y, and Z look nationally and on the state level and things. So um, that's kind of a more a more global boundary, I think, or um, barrier to some of those more fluid, naturalistic kind of days. But if we look at other countries, you know, Sweden and Finland come to mind, for example, that that so much of their education system is divorced from this standardization of data because it's just not a priority. Kids kids go to medicine if they develop a passion for medicine, not because they get the highest scores and everything. Kids go to teaching because that's what they gravitate towards. So um, it, it'll be... It, I would love to see more research that compares the educational systems and how that really fosters successful adults, um, because I think more choice and more movement is definitely a good place to start. And the choice aspect I hadn't thought of. I mean, that's something that I can easily do at work. Like I'm in a physical therapy clinic. I have all of those uh, different sensory proprioceptive, I mean, whatever inputs that I want to do, I can always step outside for a minute. Uh, but yeah. I hadn't thought about it from the standpoint of, no, that's my choice. Like I can do that. Um, but unfortunately not everybody is, uh, put in that type of situation where they're able to have all of those choices available throughout the day. Sure. And, and that can backfire sometimes because some kids will, especially kiddos that have imbalances in their sensory systems will, let's say, for example, I have a kid that can't sit still and I, I bring him to the sensory room and I ask him to choose what looks like it would feel good. And he chooses a swing and he spins and spins and spins and spins. And that's what he likes to do. Unfortunately, what we know neurophysiologically is that that fast spinning is going to basically send his sympathetic nervous system through the roof. And he's going to be even more distractible and, and, and wiggly and fidgety. So he chose something that thought he would thought would feel good. But the impact was that it actually made the classroom environment more challenging for him. So 
sometimes we have to direct those choices. So for those kids, I might say, or, or in your PT practice, you, you know, you might say, well, you have three things to choose from. Which do you want to do first? And we know in our own heads that all of those three things are going to be regulate, regulating for his system. Um, but we're, we're kind of structuring it so that he feels empowered with a choice, but it's also not going to, you know, send him off the chains kind of a thing. Um, and, and teaching kids like, man, you just did that swing. And how do you feel right now? You know, one of the languages I use with my kids a lot is how's your engine running? And it's, it's a program called the alert program. So it's like, you know, bodies are, are engines. And, and if cars go too slow, what happens? Well, they can't get to where they need to go. And if they go too fast, what happens? Well, they can crash. And, and so we, we take that model and we apply it to kids' sense of self. And how is your engine running? Well, it's running too fast. I just dropped my pencil and then I fell out of my seat and I don't have any idea what's going on in math. Well, what are the things we can do to slow down your engine? Well, I can, you know, roll on that Swiss ball slowly several times or I can, you know, do some yoga poses or whatever. So giving kids language for self-awareness, I think, is a big first step, too. Really talking about all this kid stuff, I'm curious, like, what is something that you could learn from your eight-year-old self? Maybe knowing what you know now, like, what is something that you could have picked up uh, or you could pick up upon now uh, that you really see as, as a benefit from when you were eight years old even? Wow, that's a, that's a deep question. <laughs> it's a really intriguing one. So, so you're asking what, what, what I learned from my eight-year-old self or what no, I would what, go back to? What could you learn right now? Like what, what could you take from uh, like all that you know about uh, all, all, yeah. all the stuff that we've been talking about? And what is something like you can see in your life? It's like, wow, that's probably something that I could really learn from myself back then. That's a great question. I think one of the most pivotal things that that I would have to say that I need to constantly remind myself of is the aspect of play and the importance of that suspension of reality and and getting in touch with kind of more of those um, those instinctive movement patterns. So, um, you know, eight-year-olds will go and kick a ball. Well, they used to anyways, kick a ball around in a cul-de-sac with no, you know, we're not keeping score. We're not like trying to have, you know, like halftime at our game. It's, we're just literally running around, playing in the woods, kicking things around for the sake of suspension of reality and play and being in the moment. And I think from a self-regulation perspective, those opportunities are really, really important. And as adults, they might look like meditation. They might look like yoga. It might look like for some CrossFit or, or whatever. And even though those are very, very structured, I think um, the importance of that that very um, visceral um, kind of elementary suspension of reality and and the reminder of how important that is to our own sense of self would be would be huge. And it's something I really have to help my kids understand too, as they're 14 and 16, that you know it's not all about a game where there there's keeping score and a you know a field and, and that kind of thing. Sometimes it's just um, it's just movement for the sake of it feeling good, not because there's an outcome. What are just some of your favorite forms of play, even? Um, I really like to <laughs> do like imagination stuff with my kids. And it, as silly as that is, um, you know, we'll, we'll kind of get outside of our brains and start getting creative in, in hiking environments or, you know, exploring new places that we haven't been before and kind of imagining what was going on here a hundred years ago or, or that kind of a thing. So, so I think the combination of creativity and imagination and movement is really important. Um, and it takes a safe place to do that. Otherwise, you look like a cuckoo bird. But, but I think there's there's opportunity when when you kind of make time for it. No, that absolutely sounds like a lot of fun. And I like how you said it's not just 
not just the play. I mean, that creativity aspect, there's so much more to it than, I mean, we've been focusing maybe more on some of the physical uh, talk right now, but this right. goes above and beyond that, that it's not just purely physical. There's a lot more to it. It really, it really does. And, and one of the things that I've been so, I, I think kind of moved by in my practice is how movement really opens channels to thought processes and, and what that looks like. So for example, I have kids that um, are essentially nonverbal, but when we're on a swing and we're exchanging smiles, I will get language that is like, uh, I mean, really earth shattering thoughts and ideas coming out of these kids because movement kind of opens those gates. Um, and so I think, you know, just like you mentioned that, that there, it goes much deeper than that. I think movement opens the gates to creativity. Um, it's, it's why some people I've, I've read authors who will only kind of generate the next idea for their books when they're on these long nature hikes, because movement is, is, is really a catalyst for that or musicians who do their best work when they're, you know, on a hammock or whatever it is, you know? So I think, um, I think movement as a portal to some of those deeper things is, is an important aspect too. And if we really focus our, our sights on that, I think we can see evidence of that even in our own daily lives. So what does your current movement practice look like? Um, it's, it's evolving. <laughs> I, I am someone that, that comes from um, a, a do it till I'm an expert in it kind of mentality. And I really had to work hard to kind of divorce myself from that a little bit. Um, so as much as I enjoy the, the heavy aspect of like weightlifting and, and, and kind of that piece of things, um, I, I mean, it sounds ridiculous and I'm kind of embarrassed to, to like, you know, publicize this, but but one of the things that's really empowering for me is literally just when I'm alone in the house or the backyard or, you know, putting on music and just move. I can't dance to save my life. I mean, there is no way like, I, you know, people would, <laughs> would definitely ask me to stop if I was in a public setting. But there's something really freeing about letting your body kind of move in space the way that it feels like it based on a rhythm or, or, or music or whatever. So I think for me that that has become an outlet um, and a kind of a positive thing I look forward to. Um, and then the meditation piece is huge. And I'll find different places in nature where I'll really try and and just get still um, and, and do some, you know, kind of emptying of the, the, the brain sort of a thing, which is, I think, therapeutic and cathartic in some ways. Yeah, I think and, and that's the way. Actually, let me say that differently. I think it's very important that you just said the meditation piece, uh, tying that with just being outside even like, I think those two go amazingly well together and it doesn't necessarily have to be that you're outside even, uh, if it's just around a plant in your house, uh, rock, I mean, just anything Mm -hmm. that still ties you to that, just nature, uh, can really have a profound impact on your, uh, ability to just almost empty the mind, if you will. 100%. And, and if we go back to kind of that original, uh, question about evolutionary mismatch, what you just said about the combination of nature and meditation and how that has a greater impact is really kind of touted in, in what those very, very early experiences looked like. You know, I mean, when when there was major stuff going down in the tribe, we didn't go in our hut and look at the wall or the cave. We, we were literally on a mountainside or next to a riverbed or, you know, so I think instinctively, that's where we are drawn, but environmentally, that's not often where we go. Um, so I think that connection that you mentioned is, is really a powerful one. And, and there's, I think, some, some genetic predisposition for why that that's, that's powerful. And as we're talking here, like, I'm just thinking about uh, for myself, but also just a huge movement. I mean, you see, um, 
trying to just I'm drawing a blank on any of the practitioners for it right now. Uh, but all of the whole right. getting outside, like crawling, climbing on things. Yes. I mean, I love stacking Dar- rocks myself. I mean, all of the above, though. Yeah. Well, and Daryl Edwards is someone who, um, whose work, you know, the primal play movement has mm-hmm. been so incredibly illuminating for folks um, and tying it into kind of some of that evolutionary, um, more instinctive movement and, and how that has just really transformed folks' ideas of how movement can be a powerful piece of self-regulation. So, um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and one of the things that, I, I mean, it, it sounds silly, and, and but when I have my kids in therapy sessions outside and kind of getting back to those, let's all move like a bear for five minutes, and now we're going to move like a snake, and and getting in touch with their body through that kind of thing. Yes, it's fun, and it relates to something like animals that's cool for a second grader, but but I do, in my heart of hearts, believe that there's a deeper connection there, and that there's there's a little piece of that evolutionary theory that that is informing that practice and making it more effective. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I, some of these concepts, like, never even thought about, but now uh, kind of being able to tie that together is really cool, especially with the whole evolutionary mismatch thing. And it's yeah. why, why am I still so drawn to it? Like that's a question I'm thinking about in my head. Uh, but now it all makes so much more sense though, too. Right. Right. And, and I think if, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why I think at, at a lot of the conferences that I've attended where there's folks from the ancestral health kind of perspective or the paleo movement that, that kind of get that, theory, we all, you know, we, we all kind of um, have this mutual understanding and, and there's this automatic connection because we're all thinking in much the same ways that you just described. And even if we haven't tangibly put the thoughts together, we're living our lives as though we are seeking those things and, and find them to be priorities. And so um, I think the more folks that can at least maybe shift their perspective a little bit and and be open to thinking about it from more of that um that primitive way, I, I think it can be more normalized and, and, and hopefully um, more folks will take advantage of those opportunities. So speaking of really even taking advantage of those opportunities, mm-hmm. I'm curious, Allison, if you have any thoughts or ideas, like a lot of my patients, like they go to the gym, right? And their mm-hmm. idea of going to the gym is walking on a treadmill, is riding the bike, is doing the elliptical, whatever. And I, I always try and just say, hey, no matter what, if you're going to go, if that's all you're going to the gym for, you're not going to maybe lift weights or anything like that, which even that now I'm starting to kind of question uh, as we're talking about some of this um, that can almost be done outside, like trying to show the importance of it. I always thought about it purely from the physical standpoint of, okay, the mechanics of a treadmill suck. Like they really screw your body up. I mean, just flat yeah. out. They're, they're not, not natural. natural movement. Yeah. Right. Compared exactly. to just walking outside. And I, I've always explained it from that standpoint or just the, oh, well, it's good to get outside. But how would you really – ideas on how to uh, show people the evolutionary mismatch, like how that all ties in and how that's going to just benefit them that much more besides just, oh, you should get outside for the vitamin D, you should get outside and walk because it's just better mechanics. Like that's just not always a great selling point. Right, right. And it's really difficult because I think, um, I think the, the mentality of movement needs to shift. Um, I think we are bombarded with headlines that, you know, movement and exercise, quote unquote, decreases risks of heart disease and decreases risks of cancer and, and, you know, strokes and diabetes and all these things. Um, But we don't see headlines that say 
interaction with nature saves your life, right? We don't see headlines that say climbing up a mountain and spending a day on the side of a river decreases your blood pressure and you're going to sleep better and, and yeah, maybe even lose a little weight too. You know, I mean, like we're, we're, we're really focused in our movement or in our, well, I, I, we're really focused in our education of the public about exercise as a, if you do A, you will get B. You know, if you spend 30 minutes a day doing anaerobic cardio or aerobic cardio or whatever it is, right, you'll decrease your blah, blah, blah by X number of percentages. But we never publicize and talk about how spending time outside makes you a better human, makes you more in touch with the grounding of, of your kind of, I mean, to be really esoteric role on the earth or whatever, like getting back to those primitive connections and what we crave, right? And why do we work our tails off 50 weeks out of the year so we can finally escape to Cancun on a beach for a week and feel really awesome. Where does everybody go? They either go to the mountains or the beach, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, like where do we go that we associate with peace and tranquility and regulation and being in a good place? We go to nature or we go to Vegas. I don't even want to address those people. (laughs) But, but, But I mean, I, I think if we really get critical of our own choices, we'll realize that we are making those choices every day, or, you know, at least within the course of our decision making, but we don't call them out for what they are. We call them an escape. We don't call them part of what we need in order to feel balanced. And I think when that conversation shifts so that it's not just aerobic exercise equals decreases your heart rate, it's connection to nature equals you know, grounding as a human, I think then we start to, to allow people to think about it a little differently. Um, and if we start that with kids, you know, like I'll have conversations all the time with my own children, as well as the kids that I've, I've worked with in therapy, we'll go outside for 20 minutes and we'll come in and I'll be like, how do you feel? And they'll be like, great, well, let's pick that apart. Well, I, I, and then we get really specific. Like, you know, I feel like, you know, my, my eyes got a little glossy and now I'm seeing things brighter and, and there was some wind in my hair and I, you know, I smell that grass and we, we take that multi-sensory approach and, that's my little piece of trying to educate kids on identifying why nature is so important. Um, but I think as, as a society, we need to have those conversations more globally. Thank you for that last statement. Like, cause I'm always talking to Cooper when we're going on our walks and stuff like that. But I mean, we'll look at the birds, that type of thing, but I never thought to ask him, Hey, like, okay, it was a, it was a blustery day. It was like in the teens, it was super windy today, but I didn't think to ask him like why he was getting fussy when the wind was blowing. Like I knew, but just to right. ask him stuff like that, like, why is that kind of happening? What is he feeling in that moment? Absolutely. And, and it's one of, I think, the tenets of my practice and, and how it's evolved is that that self-awareness piece is, I think, one of the greatest gifts as a practitioner I can give another person. You know, that ability to critically analyze how things in my environment affect me physically, emotionally, psychologically, um, so that I can harness the things that felt good and do more of that and put myself in more of those, those environments that, that give me good feedback and make me feel more grounded and centered. And so I can be a better, you know, peer or, um, partner or student or whatever, you know? So, so I think that self-awareness piece, um, even as, as a young age, like Cooper's, it's never too early to start that, that conversation. Yeah. Cause I, I try and acknowledge if he's upset, like, um, but I'll say, Hey, like I hear you're upset and then I just kind of go on, but now it's, there's so many more things to tie in there. So this is yeah. a really cool concept to think about where it's, uh, not just, again, we're not just talking about the movement. It can be so right. much more than that. Most definitely. And, and not to go off on another tangent, Please but do. 
but, but one of the other concepts of evolutionary mismatch that I really see, I think, evidence of daily is the idea that, that we don't foster critical thinking skills in our kids. Um, and that kind of ties back to that. I'm taking a risk. I'm getting feedback from my environment. I'm analyzing whether that was a good choice. And I'm deciding whether or not I'm going to make a mental map that I need to do that again, or I'm going to avoid it forever. Um, but we, we aren't teaching kids how to critically think and analyze. We're teaching kids to be passive consumers of knowledge and then passive reproducers of that same knowledge. Um, and, and I think, you know, we can, we can take that everywhere from, um, movement as an infant that we are, we are kind of, um, we're, uh, I can't think of the word we're, we're providing templates for movement that, that, you know, we're giving you a walker so that you learn to walk this way. And we're giving you a bouncy seat. So you learn to sit this way. And, and that model kind of translates into education. We're giving you, um, you know, this quiz. So you learn to reproduce it this way. So the critical thinking part is, I think the first step to that self-awareness piece. So back in the day and, and evolutionarily critical thinking was kind of like really necessary for survival. We had to analyze the patterns of the prey and the predators and the seasonal differences in hunter gathering kinds of lifestyles. And, and we were always, we were always interacting with our environment and, and having to redefine what our patterns of movement were going to be based on that critical thinking. And so that skill, I think we've lost. Um, and we're, we're a little more two dimensional in the passive consumption of knowledge. And, and I think that is a real disservice to our kids who um, in the educational system are evaluated by how well they can passively accept and reproduce knowledge. So critical thinking, um, another big piece of that mismatch that I think is, is important to foster at a young age. Uh, stepping back into one of the things you mentioned there, and you didn't say the words, but it's kind of what it was about is that infant development. Uh, yeah. a, a lot of like, I've studied this. I mean, I, I don't really remember going over it a whole lot in school, which is unfortunate. But some of my uh, studies at the Czech Institute, we did a lot of it there. Uh, reading um, uh, Wisdom of the Body Moving by Linda Hartley, like seeing yeah. all these different things and, and exploring it for myself. Like, if you wouldn't mind even just sharing a little bit about infant development and kind of yeah. why, why like the walkers, the, the bouncy seats may not always be the best option. Sure. And, and I'll, I'll preface that by saying I owned all of those as a parent, you know, I mean, I don't, I certainly am not demonizing, um, what we provide our, our infants and, and, you know, I'm not trying to kind of put out the message that we should raise our kids in our backyard. Um, but a time but, and place for things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think from a developmental perspective, when, when we look at infant development <clears throat> and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but but the whole goal of that first two years is to get up against gravity. You know, you get your head up first and then you get your trunk up and then you get your legs under you. And, and so we're always moving against gravity. And that is, again, evolutionarily necessary for survival. You know, if you're going to lay in a fetal position, something's going to eat you. Um, so, so there's, there's, um, there's kind of a bigger mission there. And, and one of the things that I think I'll just share kind of anecdotally is, um, you know, when we take away all of the environmental encouragement of movement, so we don't have the, you know, the mobiles that are encouraging kids to get their head up, we don't have the bouncy seats and the walkers and, you know, all of the stuff, when we take all of those environmental influences away on movement, and we even take away the encouragement from a parental perspective, the kids still get up against gravity. And, and what the anecdote kind of that I wanted to share was that I have worked with several kids um, and increasingly numbers of kids who 
were raised in their early months or years in orphanages overseas that, that tended to be very dearth of any sort of sensory stimuli or certainly there was no, you know, Fisher Price in the house kind of a thing. <clears throat> and there was one little girl that was literally confined to a crib until she was 26 months of age. Um, she, she never got out of the crib. Um, <clears throat> and it was, I mean, it, it was such a, a tragic example of complete sensory withdrawal from a cognitive, emotional, everything. But, but at 26 months of age, she could walk. She had never been, her feet had never been on the floor, but she could walk. <laughs> and so it's like that, I mean, that just hits you in the face. Like kids are going to naturally progress to get against gravity and to get upright because that's what they're wired to do, regardless of whether we have whistles and bells and parents that are, are telling them to do that. Um, but that being said, we are, I think, you know, the, the one of the statistics I, I quote frequently that I think makes a big impact is that our ages of those developmental milestones. And, you know, for, for parents, we study and we know, you know, man, by six months, if my kids isn't, you know, sitting or laughing or crawling or, you know, in my a year, I'm like looking to experts if he's not ready to walk and all these kind of things. We get a little bit obsessed with those numbers. And one of the things that we've seen is that the developmental milestones are starting to shift and occur later and later because we are keeping kids stationary at a younger age. So because we have kids in, um, you know, seating kind of devices that don't allow them those natural movement patterns, we're seeing crawling develop much later. We're in, and some of that's like the back to sleep campaign where we don't have kids laying on their stomachs, which is a great thing from, you know, a SIDS perspective, but because they're not then forced to move against gravity to get their head up and to kind of change their perspective on the horizon, um, that's delayed the crawling milestone a little bit. And evolutionarily, we're wired to do those things as quickly as our bodies allow us to, um, which which translates into better sensory integration and self-regulation from movement and deep pressure and where our joints are in space. So as we see the developmental milestones kind of um, becoming a little bit later, uh, we also see a correlation with self-regulation issues in early childhood. Um, and that's a really interesting piece to me because it does really reinforce the concept that movement and self-regulation are, so, um, are so intertwined. That's that's an awesome way to look at, yeah. I mean, taking that that infant development like full circle there, where it's more than just the movement again. Uh, right. That's what right. it seems kind of coming back to me now. It's it's that self regulation. I mean, I'm just looking at all my notes here, and like they all kind of just come full circle, and all each one is just having such a profound impact on the next. Absolutely, and and when we look at how we soothe babies we don't lay them on their backs and like, you know, make, make faces at them. We hold them tight and we provide that, that input into their joints. We bounce with them. We rock them. We provide proprioceptive and vestibular input because we know instinctively it calms that sympathetic nervous system and allows them to be alert and attentive. And that same concept applies to older kids who, when we apply proprioceptive or vestibular input via playground, naturalistic kind of things, or nature, or or maybe more a contrived piece because we need to, again, that self-regulation piece. So the same reason we swaddle babies is the same reason why, you know, some of my kids really, really need um, uh, some, some deep joint compressions before they go into a, a, a class. And from a PT perspective, you certainly know that that wakes up the joints and makes it easier for you to do your job. Um, 
and, and proprioceptors are, are well-researched, but, but it, it does really look as basic as our instinctive reactions to calming new humans. Um, those same things that calm new humans calm older humans too. It's the reason we like massage. It's the reason we, you know, a good deep hug feels very self-regulating if it's from someone you know. Um, so I, I think there's, you know, <laughs> we, we can see how that, that evidence kind of spans the lifetime. It's awesome. With all this stuff we've been talking about uh, today, I'm curious, like, what are you really like diving into right now? Anything that you're just geeking out on trying to just soak more up of? Yeah, you know what? Well, (laughs) it changes by the day. um, But (laughs) one of the things um, that I find myself kind of coming back to um, is kind of integrating this functional medicine piece of... um, of a physiological imbalance translating to behavior. And one of the, the ways that that I think has become more clear in what I've researched now is with kiddos on the autism spectrum um, and how maybe our tried and true approach of, of extra structure and rules to, to help them keep regulated um, isn't necessarily the best approach for all kids because that natural movement and that natural ability to seek what they need, like we had talked about kind of um, several minutes ago, is is fundamental to their own sense of self-regulation. So um, kiddos with autism have always been very near and dear to my heart, and I've, I've really tried to explore different aspects of self-regulation and understand it from a physiological as well as a behavioral perspective um, to, to try and um, allow them that really successful interaction and with their environment. Um, the other piece I think that, that I've really tried to hone in on is that um, mechanisms of self-awareness and, and neurophysiologically how the brain actually translates um, self-awareness into functional things. So, so like if we look at the amygdala and the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex and how all of those things affect behavior and memory and impulsivity, how are we addressing that neurophysiological aspect in the education system, in the behavior system, in the, um, in the ways that we teach kids risk and critical thinking and, and trying to understand from, you know, kind of a, a neurophysiological perspective what's going on. Um, so that we can know where interventions are going to be most successful. So geeking out on the neuro side and then really kind of embracing um, some of the issues involved with kiddos with autism. What have been, what's been your most recent, like just big takeaway from all of that? Oh, wow. Um, I think that we fundamentally have the power to change our physiology um, that, that we can change, you know, whether it be um, the, the mapping of the neurons in our brain based on what our bodies are doing, um, which then affects kind of how we interact with our environment, the people in our environment. Um, I think the, the moldability of our physiology is really empowering in that our behavior and our choices and our intake of nutrition and sensory input can have profound impacts on on really our bodies at a cellular level. Um, and I think when we take that perspective, the kind of the sky's the limit on how we can, we can be our own advocates. I, I, I love it. Uh, there we go, everybody make sure you go out and change your physiology for the better. <laughs> I mean, hey, that's, that's pretty awesome. Uh, right. thing to have power of, uh, no doubt. Uh, Allison, in, in closing, like a couple last questions for you here. Um, yeah. one thing that I always ask people is 
who would you want to hear on this podcast and what is it that you would either want to ask them or hear them talk about? Um, you know what? I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Temple Grandin, um, but she is a woman with autism and she is a professor and an author and a researcher and also a, um, a huge advocate for, um, for the humane treatment of animals in slaughterhouses. And she wrote several books. There's actually a, a movie uh, based on her life and her work, Animals in Translation. Um, and she's she's a, a she's really been kind of she was the first voice of folks that had really significant self-regulation issues, and the first person from the perspective of someone with autism that could really define what that feels like, and that helped us understand kind of globally what um, what some of the ways that we could help were, um, and one of the things that she did that she's still working on now in her research at Colorado State is she has made, um, she recognized that animals going to slaughter had incredibly high levels of anxiety and they sensed exactly what was going to happen. Um, And so their physiological systems were completely out of whack and it totally messed up the process of slaughter and caused all these differences in in what the outcomes were. And so she made these contraptions that provided proprioceptive input and pressure to the cows going to slaughter so that they were calm and the outcomes were so much greater. I mean, you, you, if, if you Google Temple Grandin, you can see exactly what she's done. There's pictures of these things. Um, and the idea came from when she was a teenager and she was so dysregulated and couldn't interact with her environment because of all of those sensory issues associated with autism that she made from plywood and pillows and basically bungee cords a self-compression machine that she could put her body into that she controlled that would give her deep pressure like someone was laying on top of her and that calmed her down. So she took that concept from her own physiological differences and applied it to one of her passions, which is the ethical treatment of animals. Um, and her work is pretty groundbreaking. So, so she's been, I think, um, a, a game changer in the world of self-regulation um, as it relates to autism, but also as it relates to kind of humans in general. And livestock and, yeah. and I mean, really just a lot of parts of the world. That's, that's Absolutely. amazing. Uh, Allison, in closing, like, where can the listeners find out more about you, what you're doing, what you're working on, just anything that you're up to? Sure. My website is um, www.evolutionarytherapies.com. And it's, uh, it's a little bare bones at, at this point, but there's certainly links to some of the presentations and, and things that I've done to kind of get the word out there as well as information on upcoming um, presentations and appearances where people can, can learn a little bit more. Um, and there's certainly a contact forum where folks can reach out, um, and that's been a good avenue for some folks that, that have heard things that I've said that really resonate with what their experiences have been. So website's probably the best way at this point. Excellent, excellent. Well, Allison, thank you so much for coming on today. Make sure everybody go check out some of the talks she's given. If, if you want to see her speak, I mean, certainly do that, but uh, I, I just love the idea that we all have that power still to change our physiology too. Absolutely. It's been a great conversation, really enlightening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to head over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to check out the show notes for today's episode. While you're there, go to my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and the show is sponsored by you guys. Each of you that I work with helps me to be able to put 
out podcasts like this for free. So thanks again for your love and support. Finally, if the show has helped you out in any way, please head over to iTunes to give the Bare Naked Health podcast a positive comment and five-star rating. This really goes a long way in getting the word out with how simple health can be and helping to share the podcast with others. So thank you. Thank you.